following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, I have a story. I made it up this week, but I think you'll like it. There was once a king named Rex, and he was the king of the promise makers. And one day he decided to check in on his subjects. So, like kings sometimes do, he put on the clothes of a commoner, he disguised himself, and then he went out into the marketplace. And what he found and what he heard horrified him. His people were indeed promise makers. They were making all kinds of promises. In fact, everything they said to one another in the marketplace, in the square, wherever he went, was framed as a promise. They all said, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, I will do it. I promise, I promise, I promise I'll do it. I swear on my life, I will do this very thing. But when it came to keeping those promises, Rex's subjects were forgetful, inconsistent, and sometimes intentionally faithless. They didn't keep their promises. They were promise makers, but not promise keepers. And so when he sat down for his supper back in the palace that night, at the end of the day, he began to consider how to address this problem. This problem he found among his people. This problem that he was, in some sense, responsible for as king. And we'll return to King Rex in a little while, but before we do, I want us to consider another king who confronted a problem among his people. A similar problem of truth and truth-telling, of commitment-breaking and of promise-making in his realm. And this morning in our text in Matthew chapter 5, we come to the third of five points regarding the moral law of God that Jesus is teaching through. In this point, Christ addresses the third commandment. He actually does this in a second set of points. If you notice, he says, again, you have heard uh, it was said by those of old. And in this exposition of God's law, Jesus is treating that great commandment of God, which I take it many of you boys and girls have memorized, which is the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. It's a commandment about our speech, about our words. And when Christ addresses this commandment, as we'll see, he actually touches on the eighth commandment as well, thou shalt not steal, and the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So today... What I want to show you very simply from the text and from Christ's teaching on the third commandment is this. The God of truth requires simple honesty. The God of truth requires simple honesty. Your words, they matter. We live in a culture in a day and age that has so degraded speech, has so profaned our words that we can forget that. We can forget our words matter. And your beliefs They matter. What you hold to be true, that matters. Both your words and your beliefs, in fact, as Christ is careful to show us at every point of his ministry, must align with the truth. Where there's any falsehood, we need to root it out and reform our understanding, correct our very speech, such that 
these things align, match up with the truth. And there's no truth apart from the true God. And so again, the God of truth requires simple honesty. We'll look at this under two headings. First, the God of truth in verses 33 through 36, the God of truth. And then simple, or the requirement of simple honesty in verse 37, where Christ brings it all home. So first, let's look at verses 33 through 36 as we consider this picture Christ gives us of the God of truth. And he begins in God's law. He says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told... You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And you might remember a few weeks ago I said the New American Standard Bible is very helpful to us. It, it puts in all caps uh, quotations from the Old Testament, but then it leaves in, in regular uh, casing uh, anything that might be a paraphrase or something. Well, interestingly enough, this particular line is put in all caps in the New American Standard it doesn't actually appear in the Old Testament as it stands. It's kind of a, a mishmash of, of various sayings and teachings from Moses' law, and it, but it's a faithful summary. It's not a faithless summary like some of the other things that we've looked at over the past weeks. In fact, the Torah, or the law of God, speaks of making vows, of making promises, and of keeping them, and of keeping those oaths by which we're bound. We just read about that in Numbers chapter 30, but we see this particularly not only in the third commandment from Exodus 20, but also in Leviticus 19 verse 12, we read kind of a, an application of the third commandment there. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane or blaspheme the name of your God, I am the Lord, which is a reminder that God gives at the conclusion of many of his laws in the Old Testament. And so this statement that Jesus is citing is probably a rabbinical saying, but it's a faithful summary of what's taught in the Old Testament. So what's the problem here? Well, the Pharisees and their teachers and the scribes, they've taken this true saying, this, this faithful summary of God's character as reflected in his law, that he's true and he demands truth, and they've twisted it. They've perverted it through limitation and diversion. Look at the words. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. So the Pharisees have put all the emphasis on the last three words, to the Lord. That is, it's not so important that you keep all your vows and promises and your word and your commitments, but just that you keep the ones that you make in God's name. And that's where Jesus goes then as he corrects this misunderstanding with a reformed understanding, hearkening back to the original intent of the law, that we would be simply honest. Notice how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees now in verses 34 to 36. That uh, this God of which they speak, this God whom they avoid making vows in his name, is indeed connected to everything he's created. Look what Jesus says in verse 34. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So Jesus starts with this revelation of God and his law in verse 33, and then he connects that revelation 
to God and his creation in verses 34 and 36. The way that these, uh, the way that what Jesus says here in these various references to uh, the heavens, to the, to the earth, to Jerusalem, and, and even to your own head, they suggest to us that he's actually quoting various vows that the Jews were making in his day. They would not swear an oath or make a vow or, or whatever on God's name, but they would, they would make an oath or a vow on other things. They'd say, you know, by heaven above, I promise I'll do this. By, I swear on the earth and even the promised land that I will pay you this money. I swear by my own head that, that I will deliver to you that which you've asked. Or I swear by Jerusalem, I'll be faithful to you all my days. And in doing that, they were trivializing their own word. You see, they would use these formulas. They would use these, these different ways of making promises in order not to keep them. They would do it in order to avoid accountability. And so when someone said, you made a promise to me, how come you're not doing this? And they could say, well, you know, I, I forgot, but it's no big deal because I didn't make the promise on God's name. So I didn't really have to keep that obligation. Now, is that the intention of the law of God? Do you think that the God of truth, the God of honesty, the God of our, our covenant-keeping God would delight in that kind of dodging of commitments? No, of course not. But that's the sorry state of affairs that Christ is confronting. And so notice what he says as he confounds and, and rebukes these various formulas that people were using. He says, don't make an oath by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Don't make an oath by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, of God's feet. Do not make an oath by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. That is of God, just as we sang in, in Psalm 48 during our offering today. And don't make an oath by your head, even though you think it belongs to you, it ultimately belongs to God. You can't make one hair white or black, but God can. So you see the logic that Jesus is employing to tear down this practice that he's found among the Pharisees. He's arguing to them, you think you're avoiding God by swearing or baking an oath by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and even your own head. But indeed, you cannot avoid God. All of life is lived before his face. Reformers use this phrase, coram Deo, before God. He is the ultimate referent. All other references, whatever you might take an oath on or about, all connect back to God. You can't escape his reach. That's Jesus' point here. He says, we live before God's presence, before his face. And so what ought then your, the quality of your speech be? Well, it should be the quality of speech of someone who's speaking before an authority that they know can judge them. If you go into the court of law and you're testifying either yourself uh, in defense of yourself or you're testifying as a witness in some other case, frequently, uh, in fact always, they'll put a Bible out. They'll make you put your left hand on the Bible and then your right hand up and say, do you swear 
to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And you make that vow, that oath. And if you lie or you say something that's not true, then, and they find out, then you'll be charged with a crime called perjury or telling a lie. And that's punishable even by going to jail. It's a very serious thing. Well, part of the weight of that is you're telling, you're giving an account, you're telling something, you're reporting facts before an authority who's able to throw you in jail if you're found out to be lying or if you found out to be not telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And what Jesus is saying is, when you make these vows and these oaths, thinking that you're avoiding that judgment, that authority of God, indeed, I'm telling you, He's right there watching you. You cannot escape him. As a quality of your speech, even this past week, does it measure up to that standard? Can you say, without any lying today, this week I've told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in my day-to-day affairs? So help me God. Brothers and sisters, no matter how honest you are, no matter how faithful you think you've been, that standard is impossibly high for us to meet. We've all fallen short of it. And we're going to get into a minute to see what, that, that indeed Jesus does require, that simple honesty that tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, even in our, even in our most simple day-to-day activities. But every time we tell a white lie, every time we try to hide the truth from our mom or our dad so we don't get in trouble, every time we try to trick and deceive our brothers and our sisters, or perhaps we try to avoid giving that report to our boss at work, or whatever the case may be, or even if we get pulled over and the officer says, do you know how fast you were speeding? And you say, oh, I mean, I had it set on cruise control just a couple miles above the speed limit, officer when indeed you know you are flying, well, in all those circumstances, you are testifying falsely before the ultimate judge of heaven and earth himself. And he is perfectly just, and he will punish sin, for he is a God of truth, the God of truth. He's the God not just of just truth, though. He's also the God of saving truth in Jesus Christ. He's the God of truth that keeps his promises to deliver us from our sins, to deliver us even from our own lies and the habits that we build up over the time of of the sin that we inherit in our birth and in our conception. He's the God of saving truth, not found in a vacuum, but found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, this God has spoken in his law, and we've seen that even in Numbers 30, in Leviticus 19, and in Exodus 20, and, and, in, and even in this passage. But he's also spoken in his word of delivering his people out of sin and misery and death, of pouring out his justice upon Christ, the living word, who is himself true and without fault. He who has created all things, who sits in the heavens above, who makes the earth his footstool, who dwelled in Jerusalem among his people Israel, who has numbered the very hairs on your head and has made them white, black, blonde, red, or disappearing quickly, whatever the case may be. 
this same God. He sees into your very heart of hearts. And he pardons you when you come to him for pardon. He forgives you when you confess that you've been less than truthful. He indeed is quick to do so and eager to do so. Has it not been said that Christ has more eagerly and, and earnestly gone to the cross than we oftentimes go to prayer to seek his forgiveness and his cleansing blood? Indeed, it is God's Son who laid down his life for our salvation. He has ransomed us from the penalty of sin, all those who've trusted in him. And he's ransomed us from the penalty of falsehood and the consequences of it. He puts before us now the way of truth in life in verse 37. Having showed us the God of truth in his high standard, he now gives us the requirement of simple honesty. That rule by which he lived his own life. Look at verse 37 with me. Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. Notice I've changed the translation there a little bit from the New American Standard. Um, the construction there is more properly understood as the evil one. There are two ways that we should understand what two points that Christ is making here now and giving a positive commandment. Having unveiled to us the, the falsehood and the foolishness of what the Pharisees were teaching, which is basically, you only got to keep your word if you swear by God's name. Everything else is kind of up for grabs. Jesus shows that to be foolishness and foolhardy. And now he's saying, no, you need to be simply honest in your speech and in your commitments. That's point one. And then point two, anything else, anything beyond that simple honesty, any kind of subtlety or whatever, that in fact is from the evil one because it's lies and lying. We'll get to that. So first, in speech and commitments, what does this simple honesty look like? Well, in Jesus' day, Josephus, the historian, tells us this. The, uh, there is a sect called the Essenes, and they were known to be very faithful in their speech. In fact, they were regarded in, in some circles by some people as judges. You would go to them, and, and you would ask them what was true. And if they knew and they told you what was true, well, you could, you could take that to the bank. There was, no, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that they were telling the truth. They were in some ways justices of the truth because their yes was yes and their no was no. That is precisely what Christ is setting before his disciples here. Not that they should become Essenes going and living in caves and things like that group did, but no, that they should be simply honest in their everyday speech, in their casual speech one with another, but even and also on solemn or formal occasions when it was proper and appropriate to take vows and to, take and to be bound by oath to tell the truth. But doesn't he say in verse 34, make no oath at all? And doesn't he say, just say yes or no and let that be it? Now, Christians through the ages have interpreted this in various ways. Um, in the past, during the Reformation, the Anabaptists, who, who 
went to all kinds of extremes, and then uh, the Mennonites and the Amish today who have descended from them, and even the Quakers who adopt a lot of their practices, they all said, we can't take any oaths. We can't take an oath in court of law. We can't take oaths in contracts, so we can't take out mortgages. We can't take oaths of citizenship to any nation. We can't take oaths of service, either as police or as elected officials or as military people. And so then they actually have to, not so much the Quakers, but the others, have had to set up alternative communities that can operate without these kinds of solemn, formal oaths. They don't take membership vows in the church. And to the best of my knowledge, when they get married, they don't take vows or oaths as such as we understand them. Is that radical interpretation required by the text? What do you think? Well, we should test Scripture with Scripture or interpret Scripture with Scripture. And there's a couple places we can go to do that. First, in Scripture, in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. Paul says, As God is my witness. He's taking an oath. He's calling down the judgment of God if he's found out to be lying about what he's saying to the church in Rome. And then he continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Likewise, he says, But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. And so Paul, again, speaking under direct inspiration of the, of the Spirit of God, swears an oath recorded for us in Scripture. Well, if that doesn't do it for you, what about Christ himself? Even in the same gospel that we're studying today, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, we see Jesus is, uh, is dragged before the Sanhedrin. That's like the Supreme Court slash Congress, religious Congress of his day. It would be something like our General Assembly in the Presbyterian Church. And the high priest stood up and said to him in verse 62, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. That means I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, who was silent just a moment before in verse 64, said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. By answering his questioner, who had just adjured him by God, Jesus is entering into an oath-bound testimony, and he's giving it. Jesus himself, who just told his disciples not to swear an oath at all, it seems, takes an oath himself and testifies under it in this very same account. In Matthew's Gospel. So how do we understand this? Well, one last example. God in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 says this. Of his own promise to his people. He says, um, well we'll start at verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope to set before us. And we understand that God takes oaths, even swearing by himself, to call forth our faith in him and to confirm it to us. 
when he proves himself to be true. So oath-taking in and of itself is not an evil. But the point that Christ is making here is that you should not make frivolous oaths that you're not going to keep. Instead, let your yes be yes or your no, no. To illustrate this, even in my own life, I one time had a friend who asked me to do several little tasks, and I thought, okay, I can remember that, and I didn't put it away on my list of things to do, and I went about my day and whatever, and the days passed by, and by the end of the week, my friend said, hey, did you, did you get those things for me that you said you were going to do? And I said, oh, man, I completely forgot. I didn't do it. And he said, listen, I'm just going to say this one time. If you say you're going to do something, you really ought to do it. Otherwise, and I know that you don't mean to neglect them, but otherwise I'm not going to be able to trust you as a man of your word. And that left a deep impression on me. I mean, it seems rather severe, but he made the point, and he made it clear, and I received it well, and that is, if you're going to say you're going to do something, do it. Well, then he continued, and if you can't do it for whatever reason, or you're not able to get to it, just Just tell me and I'll figure out something else. But one way or the other, I need to know. Now, do you see how this affects then not just our relationship, but everything that goes on between men? If you're not simply honest in your speech, if you can't say, no, I can't do that, or yes, I can do that, and then deliver, well, then we can't trust one another. We don't know what's going to happen. Everything's kind of up in the air, and we really can't function at the end of the day. Even in little things, how much more so in the big things of life, taking vows of marriage and perpetual fidelity to one another and mutual support and encouragement, signing a mortgage and promising to make that payment every month, swearing uh, an oath of office to deliver to the people that which you've promised to do as a public servant if the Lord puts you in that position. All of these things hinge on the truthfulness of our character and of our speech. That's how important this is for family, for society, for church, even for the nation and for covenants between nations. I mean, this goes down at every level as one of the most important things for human interaction and and how we deal with one another. And so Christ is saying, whether you take an oath or not, If that's demanded in the particular context that you're in, it can sometimes be appropriate. You shouldn't need the oath. Yeah, you can take it, but you shouldn't need that. For you, my people, should be among all people perfectly honest and truthful and reliable in your speech and your commitments. That's what Jesus is putting before his people. Now, what does he say in the second half of 37? Why does he throw this on? He says, anything beyond these is of evil. He's not condemning vows. But what he's saying is that anything beyond simple yes and no, particularly in our everyday speech, uh, those casual oaths, they're evil in that they suggest that we're not truly honest. Again, another illustration. Do you you ever hear it said... I really mean it this time. <laughs> you kids ever say that? You say, did you take out the trash? Did you, are you going to put away the dishes? Yeah, mom. Yeah, dad. I'm going to do it. I really mean it this time. Now, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to put some extra force, some extra oomph into your word. But what Jesus is saying is, 
what you're actually suggesting is that you're not always very honest. And so we need this additional assurance. Well, guess what? Mom and dad shouldn't need that. If you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I will take out the trash. I will put away the dishes. I will do my homework. I will make my bed. We should be able to trust you to just do it. If you say, but I really mean it this time, I promise, I, like, no kidding this time. Well, what that suggests to us is that at other times you are kidding or you're not being honest or you don't really mean it, that your word lacks integrity, that you're not a simply honest person. And when Jesus says that's of the evil one, who is he referencing? He's referencing whom he calls in John chapter 8, the father of lies, who was a murderer from the beginning. Remember, it was through a lie in the garden that Satan introduced the way of death to Adam and Eve and drew them astray in deceit and lying. Now, Christ sets before us the way of life, which is indeed the way of truth. And in John's gospel, the same Christ who calls Satan the father of lies refers to himself as the way, the truth, and the life through whom we approach the Father. So do you hear this great king who sets before us a way of truth, who sets before us a way of life, who indeed has blazed it himself, this trail that we are to follow, and who walks it on our behalf that we might be saved? Shifting gears back to another king. You remember King Rex, that story I told at the beginning? Now, what do you think he did? He confronted this flagrant falsehood of his people, these promise makers who couldn't keep any promises. What do you think he did to address it? Well, he issued a royal declaration banning promises. He said, you shall not make any more promises except under strict guidelines during weddings, while you testify in court, when you write up important contracts, and when you take membership vows in the church. Those are the four times you can can make a promise, Rex tells us. And from that time forth, he actually renamed his realm. Instead of the kingdom of promise makers, he renamed it the kingdom of word keepers. Because that's where it counts. The promises you make are much less impressive to those around you Uh, whether or not you keep your word is much more impressive. You can be known as someone who makes a lot of promises. But if you've ever listened to uh, Cat Stevens and other old songs, those who make promises and don't keep them actually end up destroying lives and bringing a lot of sadness into the world. But if you become known as someone who keeps your word, who follows after Christ, who kept his word who obeyed his father even unto death in keeping with the word of God that was given to him, well, then that truly is impressive. And you're not going to introduce death into the world through that means. You're going to introduce life and promote life in the world through those means. For what does God require of you but to keep your word and to keep it simply and honestly? See, the God of truth requires simple honesty. The God of truth requires simple honesty. In his law, he pressed home the importance of keeping our word, of telling the truth, of upholding our commitments in all of life and in all of our relations as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, as fathers and mothers. 
And indeed, he who created all things sees all things. So if you think you can dodge him by swearing oaths on on other lesser things, well, indeed, you're just going to end up back before his throne anyway. And so are you truthful in your speech at all times? Are Are you truthful to keep up your commitments and those promises that you do make, either implicitly or explicitly? And if not, do you not know that liars and their lies, as Jesus tells us, are from the evil one? There's a grave seriousness here. That evil one will be cast into a lake of burning fire. He will be judged for all eternity. Do you want to tie yourself up with him? Or do you want to unite yourself to the king of truth, the king of glory, the king who calls all men to himself to find pardon for sin and also to find a spirit to help? He who has kept his promises, this great king, is he who has kept them to the uttermost even to the laying down of his life, the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, that we might be pardoned for our carelessness and rebellion. But speaking of the breaking of his body, did you not note in Psalm 34 when we sang it that there's a promise buried in there toward the end that not a single bone of his body would be broken? God the Father makes that promise to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, his Son. And it's true. Even hanging on the cross, not a single bone was broken. We see the faithfulness of God displayed to the uttermost at the cross in so many ways. So let us trust in him, this living word, this King Jesus, this King of our salvation, and let's walk in his truth as a people that we might glorify him and delight ourselves in him forever by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.